everybody. I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. podcasters before too but it has never happened to me not in the 19 episodes of this podcast has it happened to me (laughs) (laughs) the voice tracks were not set up correctly so for the last almost hour we've been talking nothing was being recorded on my side and it's my case this week so we just got Ree's little, mm-hmm. Oh. Oh. <laughs> that would be really interesting to listen to, I'm sure. <laughs> Dude, I would be so pissed if I came back later and I was like, what the fuck happened to this episode? Because I usually edit them before they drop. I guess I'm not doing that anymore. But, <laughs> God, I would be pissed. But, thankfully, around the 15-minute mark, my cat decided that it was time to throw up a hair tie that she ate. So, as a series of unfortunate events that turned into very fortunate ones before we got all the way through the case, and then I'm getting ready to drop this episode, and I'm like, there's no recording! Yeah, that's what's going on on our end. I'm sorry for screaming into the microphone. I'm a little salty, more with myself than anything, but I'm a little salty that I'm going to have to reread everything that I just just told Ree, and now she knows. She knows my case, so there's no live action reaction going on. Oh, a reaction! <laughs> Maybe I should get a drink of alcohol before we start. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, hi. I'm very sad, but it's okay. This is still a really good case. (laughs) (laughs) And this is our banter this week. (laughs) And the listeners are still going to hear the case. (laughs) The listeners are still going to hear the case. Rhea's really special. She gets to hear it twice. (laughs) At least we didn't get to the end and then realize it. I'm happy we at least realized it before the end. That would have been even more sad. I would have been so mad coming back to edit this. I would have been so mad. Anyway. Guys. Since Reese heard a good chunk of the case. I guess it's time you guys do too. (laughs) Here come the trigger warnings. While we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime, it's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. episode we will be discussing cases involving suicide. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 
273-8255. Now, back to the show. Before we get started again, let's make sure that we're both a part of this. <laughs> Can you hear my voice? I I won't break down right now. We'll break down after the episode. <laughs> anyway. Ree, guess what I have for you this week? <laughs> I'm sure it's a big surprise. <laughs> oh, you know it. <laughs> I got a little cat for Katie. <laughs> Okay, getting serious as my makeup's running. Um, the vocab lessons this week, I'm not entirely sure, constitute as vocab lessons or just a lesson in general. But we'll get started with the first one. Ninhydrin is a chemical reagent used to develop latent fingerprints on porous materials by reacting with amino acids found in perspiration. So this means on your fingertips, if you want to come with me to the molecular scale here for a second <laughs> and just look at them, if you look and see your ridges in there, there are actually little fine pores that are inside those ridges. Sometimes they're a little bit more visible than not, but under a fingerprint scope or a microscope, you can actually see these ridges on the surface of your hands. Sweat will develop there, and ultimately, that's what kind of gives us a clean fingerprint for the most part, sweat and oils. Now, generally, prints will begin to appear within an hour or two after being exposed to ninhydrin, and they'll be a bluish-purple color. However, there are some factors that can vary its time frame and the result as I've experienced in one of my forensic evidence classes, <laughs> um, where the prints on the sample were obviously there because A, I put them there, and <laughs> B, <laughs> the ninhydrin did not work with the prints to show them being on that substrate because the chemical was presumably expired, which is a great lesson in quality control and quality efficiency. Make sure that if you're working in a lab, everything is dated with the date that it's made and the presumed expiration date because you don't want to have that issue going on in the field. Um, the next part is physical developer in relation to latent prints. This is a type of chemical mixture that is used for visualizing prints on porous surfaces that is typically a silver nitrate-based reagent and can be used when ninhydrin fails to develop. So if one wishes to use this with the previously mentioned chemical of ninhydrin, the object is supposed to go through a fume of iodine followed by the treatment of ninhydrin and then applied with physical developer to get a clear print. Sounds fancy. It is fancy. <laughs> it's very fancy. Now, there is another type which is more prevalent to today, and that's super glue fuming, which I guess I'll throw it in here too since we're talking about latent prints. We don't specifically talk about it in this episode, but super glue fuming is the use of cyanoacrylate in a closed space to develop a print on typically porous or non porous surfaces, and the print will typically show up as a white. So if you want to do a fun experiment at home. The best way to super glue fume, in my opinion, is just go to the dollar store, get a cheap plastic water bottle or container, take a spoon, place your finger and roll it across the top of the spoon, like the back end of it where it concurves back out. I don't know if that's a word, concaves. <laughs> <laughs> um, out, roll your print across that. You're going to put that 
into your water bottle and then use some tinfoil to make like a little boat and put a good amount of super glue in there and also drop that into your water bottle be careful not to spill it because you might glue your spoon into your water bottle we don't want that and then close the lid of that water bottle and let it sit for a little bit by the time that you've like forgotten about it and come back that print will be developed along with any other prints that you left on that spoon Boom. So it's Home like science. no water in it or anything. It's just the little glue boat and the spoon. Mm-hmm. Huh. Just All make right. sure that you close it off. So you can get that fuming aspect. Makes more sense now. When you first named it, it sounded like kids sniffing glue, and I was a little concerned. Yeah, huffing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're not. We're not sniffing glue here, Bree. Put put your glue stick away. <laughs> so, physical developer with silver nitrate is also a very effective method for developing prints that were on any type of previously wet substrate as well. Hmm. Very cool. There's your little forensic science lesson for today. Like Very I said, nice. not sure if it relates to vocab lessons with Katie or if it's just a lesson with Katie, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so going forward, Rhiannon, can you tell me what you think of when you hear the name Coors. Beer. I was going to say, I'm like, don't you steal my story. No, I'm not, not going to steal your story. I think, I think a beer. Yeah. I think most of us think of beer. I think of beer too. But I go to the commercials of football games where people are pulling big packs of Coors out of the tailgates of their truck or their car and going to tailgate parties with it or even sitting at the bar drinking beer while watching the game on the big screen. Some other things I go to are the movie like Smokey and the Bandit, which we'll talk about a little bit as we go into some history of Coors Beer and the company. So in the year of 1873, a pair of German immigrants by the name of Adolf Coors and Jacob Schuler established Coors Brewing Company in Golden, Colorado. Coors invested about $2,000 into this operation, while Schuler invested $18,000. However, by the year of 1880, Coors would buy out his partner Schuler, making him the sole owner and proprietor of the brewery. Now, during the Prohibition, which took place in 1920 to 1933, many breweries closed due to the constitutional ban on the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages. Coors at this time converted into a malted milk factory and near beer production factory. To which, if you're wondering what near beer is, I was too. It's basically exactly as it sounds. It's a beer substitute drink with little to no alcohol, which allows for sale to be legal during the prohibition. Sorry, my my cat just decided to be a monkey around me there for a moment and now she's heading back to <laughs> the bathroom and I'm I'm worried she's going to try to eat another hair tie if she can find one, which she magically pulls these out of the multiverse. So <laughs> it it might happen. <clears throat> um but to me what I had said before was that um, non-alcoholic beer just doesn't seem worth it to me. But we did put into explanation that like, if you don't necessarily like alcohol, but you like the taste of beer, it's a good substitute. Or for my explanation I gave was that in the case of some alcoholics, they like the taste of beer because it reminds them of alcohol, but they're not having alcohol. Yeah, or even if you have certain medications, uh, especially if you're elderly and get new medications where you've 
for years been drinking this one kind of beer and now you're on a medication where you can't have alcohol that would allow you to continue enjoying this drink you've had for years that you probably have really fond memories of <clears throat> while taking your, your medication too so i think there's a few different reasons people might be into the non-alcoholic beer but yeah back in the prohibition period i'm not sure how popular it was <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I feel that I'm like I probably still wouldn't drink it because I'm not a huge beer fan there's a couple out yeah. there that I like but for the most part I'm like meh yeah, um, I'm pretty picky about beer definitely more of a, a wine and liquor person same. I enjoy a good beer but pretty picky about my beer I'm, I'm very <laughs> very classy I go with wine most of the time if I have the option <laughs> However, the other day when I was at Smith's, I definitely went for beer and hard cider, which I forget how packed with alcohol hard cider can be sometimes. And then my mom took me on a fun stubble throughout the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> but Coors would sell the melted milk to Mars Candy Company to make sweets, which if you have or you haven't had a Mars bar, I can't say i highly recommend it but they're not bad they're good in a pinch um might want to try that out after this who knows just knowing <laughs> that coors would sold them malted milk <laughs> <laughs> however what really kept the business alive for coors and the family was the role that the coors and the sons played in the porcelain and cement trades with local real estate companies by the time the prohibition ended in 1933, only a handful of breweries had survived and Coors was considered to be one of the lucky ones. Starting as a local beer brewery, Coors would eventually branch to nearby states, marketing mainly to the American West. This gave a certain type of mystique to those living on the East Coast who had heard about the beverage and those who had traveled to the West would typically attempt to bootleg a box or two of Coors back to the East Coast. This was reflected with the status of Smokey and the Bandit, where there were some states that were still not entirely over that prohibition period, and they were running kind of dry state legislates with alcohol. So by the 1980s, most of the alcohol restraints had been lifted at this time, and Coors became a nationally distributed beer in the United States. Now, you might be going, what does beer have to do with true crime? But did you know that the name Coors became a nationwide manhunt comparable to that of the Lindenburg baby kidnapping? Hmm. So let's start today by talking about one very specific family member in the Coors family. Adolf Coors III was born in January 12th of 1915. And like his father and youngest brother, he went and graduated from Cornell University before eventually taking the mantle and being the CEO and chairman of the board of Coors Brewing Company. He was married to Mary Grant in November of 1940 and had four children. To most individuals who knew Adolf, they simply knew him as Aid. He was well-liked by his associates, his employees, and he was known for his friendliness and reserved nature. Despite being the eldest successor of the Colorado beer empire and a very accomplished man for his young age, Aid preferred the simpler lifestyle and loved to be on his own at his horse ranch just southwest of Denver where he and his family resided. Our story today begins on a crisp, windy morning of Tuesday, February 6, 1960. Aid had rose before the sunrise that morning to do his daily exercise regimen and take care of the horses by pitching some hay and breaking the ice in their troughs. He then returned to the house, showered, and got dressed for work before joining his wife Mary at the kitchen table for coffee. Before leaving the brewery that morning, he kissed Mary goodbye, having already given his send-off to his children who had boarded the school bus minutes earlier that morning. 
Grabbing a tan baseball cap and slipping on his favorite navy blue nylon jacket, he went to his vehicle and began heading down the driveway, waving to his ranch's manager as he passed around 7.55 a.m. Aid's normal route to work, which was a 12-mile drive to the brewery, would have him traveling less than a mile to the paved U.S. Highway 285, which would allow for quick transport to work. However, the road was closed that day, forcing him to detour along a winding gravel road for four miles into Turkey Creek Canyon, where it would be reconnected to an opening section of Highway 285. Around 10.30 to 11 o'clock a.m. that morning, a milk delivery driver on his morning route pulled up along the narrow timber bridge over Turkey Creek near Morrison, Colorado. On this bridge was an international travel-all station wagon blocking the path. The driver honked his horn several times in an attempt to get the attention of the driver of the station wagon blocking the bridge to move, however received no response. The individual then got out of his truck and walked to the vehicle to find it empty, its engine idling and the radio still playing, before returning back to his car to honk the horn a few more times in an attempt to bring the driver back. When this failed, the milkman moved the car himself to the side of the road. While doing so, he noticed a red-brown stain on the bridge itself and a hat on the edge of the riverbank just below. The milkman then traveled to a secondary location to report the matter to the local police. Upon arriving at the scene, police quickly were able to determine that the car belonged to that of 45-year-old Adolf Coors III. Searchers were soon spread over the area looking out for the father of four. In addition to the tanned baseball cap, a pair of eyeglasses were found with the left lens cracked from its impact on the ground. Uh. Only a few other items were found in the location that related to Coors and a small area around the bridge was basically where all these items were found. Searchers did extend the perimeter and searched throughout the area. However, nothing else was found and aid was now determined by police to be a missing person. Within the passage of 24 hours nearing, the FBI Denver Division became involved with the high-profile case to aid Colorado authorities. With this passage of time and AIDS disappearance, it fell under the federal kidnapping statute, which allowed for a full investigation and resources of the Bureau to be called upon. On the morning of Wednesday, February 10th, headlines of the Rocky Mountain News read, Adolf Coors III disappears. FBI enters search. Now, People described the FBI agents as being in unmarked black vehicles, wearing dark suits, ties, starched white shirts, fedoras, trench coats, trimmed hair, faces were shaved, and they would either wear sunglasses or eyeglasses depending on their vision conditions. Now, I mentioned previously that this sounded like something out of Men in Black to me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it definitely does. It's it's very movie-like and very surreal, and I can only imagine what the people of Golden in Morrison, Colorado thought of this. <laughs> <laughs> can only imagine. So, during this whole situation, there was actually directive from J. Edgar Hoover in Washington that there was to be a 30-mile radius of 50 officers from the FBI Western Kidnap Squad stationed throughout the Colorado area. And it was also mentioned in another article how J. Edgar Hoover was actually friends with some of the Coors, and it's stated to, I believe, Aid's dad, Adolf Coors II, that he was going to bring his boy home safely. And that was his main priority and main goal. Hoover even marked this case as being top priority, and this made the hunt for Coors and his assailant the largest FBI effort since the Lindenburg baby kidnapping in 1932, which if you don't know about that case, we'll get into it another time, as I always say. <laughs> <laughs> not today. Not, not today. 
There will be a day. It is not this day, though. <laughs> now, try to stick with me because there are several different things happening, presumably at the same time or in overlapping times or around the same time of what I believe to be Wednesday the 10th. So, the FBI took up questioning people around the town and establishments that day. Most people were asked about Aid's character, and many spoke on how he had been a well-known person throughout Colorado, especially Golden, having been raised there and participated in local baseball teams in the area as their first baser. People were also in absolute disbelief that something could have happened to Aid, and that many residents of Golden believed that the attack on the Coors family to be an attack on Golden itself stating that Coors was Golden and Golden was Coors. Anyone who dared to denounce the name of Coors during this time or claim to have beef or absolutely no beef at all with the family became suspect as it was very peculiar. Like, this family is loved throughout the state for just being friendly, helping, and hardworking. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like one tight-knit community. Damn. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's so much love for the Coors family, and Coors absolutely loved their town, too. And from what I had read in a lot of articles, they had actually put back to their community as well, which was stellar. Yeah, that's awesome. So, during and after questioning of the locals, the Bureau issued the dams to drop off agents at Mr. Coors, Joe Coors, and Bill Coors' homes. They were all charged in the meantime of manning telephones, surveillance, and recording devices were set up in the case of contact with the assailant. Similar cars and agents were sent to Aid's home near Morrison to question Mary and relieve the already stationed county deputies from the day prior who were conducting surveillance in and outside of that home, just in case the kidnappers may have come back or were staking the place out or may have attempted to, once again, kidnap another family member. Since county investigators had completed the collection of evidence at the bridge the day before the FBI's arrival, and there were still people continuing the search for aid with tables set up near the bridge, there wasn't really much to be collected from there, and that's mainly because when you have people trampling through your crime scene, it's hard to distinguish cross-contamination and a lot of that evidence becomes inadmissible in a court of law. Uh. But going back to these people that were stationed at the bridge and just showing how much Golden and Morrison loved the Coors family, there were tables set up near the bridge with hot pots of coffee, donuts, sandwiches, and waters for the individuals that had been searching this area the whole night for aid. That's the way to do it. Support team. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, an H-19 helicopter was sent from Lowry Air Force Base outside of Denver to scout for aid from the air, and U.S. Air Force C-45 and C-47 planes were set on standby in the case of finding him. Unfortunately, despite all this manpower given by local residents, friends, and law enforcement, there was still no sign of aid. Now, there were other tactics in place and occurring with the FBI agents and county investigators as they began to visit houses in the Turkey Creek Canyon area, interviewing residents for any information they can find in this point. Now, I'm going to read from a Miss Rosemary Stint, an FBI interview. This is one that I retrieved in the Long Reads article, which is available in our reference section for this case, and rightfully titled, it was a very long read. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to try my best not to give it a country accent this time, but there is a little bit of country in Colorado if you know <laughs> whereabouts you're at. <laughs> um, it was about 8 o'clock. Uh, right after I sent my kids off to school, about 20 minutes after, the bus picks them up around 20 minutes till every morning. First, it sounded like somebody hollering down at the bridge. I can hear people talking down there pretty plain most times. Hear their cars crossing over. I live only about 
a quarter mile away. But yesterday, the wind was blowing really hard, so I couldn't hear it so plain. I was sitting in front of my sewing machine by the window. It sounded like one or two words is all. It was two different people, I think. Then I heard a cracking sound, like lightning striking a tree. As a little girl, mm. I heard lightning splitting a tree in half right next to the house. That's what it sounded like. I looked out the kitchen window to see if a tree had fallen down out back, but didn't see nothing. So... It was then I got to thinking it might be a gunshot. Just one shot, or it could have been two really close together. The FBI officer asked at this point, what type of shots did you hear? Was it a pistol, a rifle, a shotgun, any idea of the caliber being used? To which Miss Stitt replied with, I talked to Bill about it last night, that's my husband, and he asked if it sounded like a 22 that him and my son shoot at rabbits or like a 38 they shoot every once in a while where they set targets up in the hills. I said it sounded more like a 38 because it sounded like lightning. The shot came about a minute or two after I heard the hollering. I thought it might be poachers shooting game on the preserve. We've had some trouble with hunters up here in the past, or it might be some surveyors I'd seen working. I didn't hear nothing else, so I went back to doing housework. Later on in the morning, though, about 10, 30, 11 o'clock, I heard someone hollering and honking a horn. About 15 to 20 minutes after that, the milkman showed up and told me about a car blocking the bridge down yonder. He asked to use the telephone, but we ain't got one, so he left and said he'd stop at the next station to call police. The FBI interviewed another individual about two and a half miles away from Turkey Creek Bridge, Amos Pauline Moore, who told a very similar story. She had mentioned how she would usually work on Tuesday mornings for cleaning houses in Denver, but her boss had called her the previous night to tell her she didn't need to come in. And she basically had the morning to herself to do housework and laundry. And that's exactly what she was doing. She'd been hanging up her wash on the clothesline out back around 8 a.m. the previous day on February 9th. And heard a shot in the canyon real clear. It sounded far off and as if it was coming from the bridge, she notes. Now, hours of interviews pass, and at this point, the FBI learned that no one in the surrounding area had actually seen aid or his abductors on that bridge. This left investigators with no idea how many kidnappers there could be. Uh. The possibility of a struggle or shooting was to be questioned, and no one saw the abductor's car leaving the scene. However, with the report of AIDS' disappearance now in the media spotlight, it led several people to report seeing suspicious vehicles at or near the bridge days before the disappearances. Now, with like other stories we've had, some of these reports, there are issues because they don't exactly match up. Now, some people reported seeing a blue Dodge, some people reported seeing a, I want to say it was a Lincoln, but... There was one car that became reported more frequently as time went on. Hmm. A report came in from Jeanette Erickson, who lived less than a mile and a half away from the bridge, and that she had seen a yellow car near that bridge that Sunday. To which another two people, Viola Ranch and Charlotte Carter, came forward to state that they had also seen the same car. Other witnesses said they'd seen a car resembling a 1951 Mercury in the vicinity, and three of which said the car was yellow, and one said that it was a cream color. Two people said it was a solid color and had a black top, while Viola Ranch stated that it had a green cloth top. Another individual, a Miss Nadine Carter, reported seeing a yellow car parked near the bridge in a three consecutive days standard time on her way to work before the disappearance took place. Another report from local Jim 
Macy said he often saw the yellow mercury near the bridge and he'd seen it around 5.30 p.m. on Sunday with a man standing beside it wearing a brown hat, glasses, and his wife stated that she had seen the car again around 1 p.m. on Monday, a mere 19 hours prior to AIDS' disappearance, with the same man standing by it. Following this, former Morrison County Constable James Cable said his wife, Margaret, saw a 1951 or 52 Mercury near the bridge several times, including at 8 a.m. the morning of February 8, 1960. To which, if you remember, this would have been around the time the aide would have been taking his route to work. James also saw something that no one else did and gave it to the FBI during their interview. It was the license plate number. Damn. Now... With the license plate number, the FBI basically hoped and prayed that this car wasn't stolen because they had some questions for this guy. Oh, because if it's stolen, is the concern then you can't track the identity of who is driving it because that would only lead you to who the previous owner was? Yep. Damn, I never thought about that too much before. <laughs> Shit. That's yeah. a big deal that I realized. <laughs> So, with there being a couple different claims about this vehicle and its color, if it had a sunroof, if it didn't have a sunroof, what color was the sunroof, um, there was one very clear thing that all witnesses did discuss with the FBI. No one had seen this car since AIDS' disappearance. Yeah. Which, for it to be sitting around consecutively days in a row and then nothing, that has a little red flag going up. Yeah, that doesn't sound right at all. Nope. Ugh. So, the same day, Wednesday the 10th, just as a reminder, while agents were investigating and doing other interviews, a ransom letter was intercepted at the post office at 9.40 a.m. It was dusted for prints and copies were made. This piece of evidence was treated with trichetohydrate in silver nitrate which is a very scientific way and difficult way of saying ninhydrin with a physical developer technique to recover any possible prints on this letter. Don't laugh at me. It was a big word. <laughs> no, I was just thinking to myself that I feel like a scientist liked to come up with long, complicated words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they really do. I'm like, I had to pause to read that a little bit. You won't hear it once I'm done editing, but I had to pause to read that for a moment. I'm like, mm, is that right? I also do not have my glasses on, which does not help my cause. <laughs> so, unfortunately, after the hydrogen process had been done and the physical developer process had been done, no latent impressions were found to be of value. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that there were no fingerprints on the envelope. It just means that there's so little detail or there's other factors pertaining to those prints that are inadmissible and not likely to give you a clear comparison to another individual. Is it possible that whoever had been handling that item had worn gloves or something to try to prevent fingerprints? Or was it more just not a great great fingerprint on the item or the technique just didn't work out that time in my presumption it could be a mixture of both okay you also have to think if this came through the mailing department as well oh yeah if somebody had touched that and now their prints are on it so now you have to rule out their prints that are on it and there are some instances where depending on where you grab like for example if you're handling a mug where are you likely to grab on that mug got it you yeah. usually either grab the handle or some people will go through the handle and like hold the mug around it. So when mm -hmm. we're dusting for prints on those types of substrates, we really got to think about where we're grabbing. So typically, and this is what one of my forensic teachers taught me and one of my mentors taught me is that the best way to do it is that if there's liquid in it, try to dump it out by like coming out from underneath, dump it out and then stick your hand in that mug and open it. And then flip it back ah. over and do dusting. Okay. If there's no liquid in the mug, then you don't have to do step one. You just stick your hand <laughs> in and you turn it over. 
please disregard step one and go directly to step two. <laughs> yes. It's very, like, it's not something that you would normally think of. Like, think of where your yeah. hands are going to be placed. If you're looking at, like, for a wine glass, per se, you typically hold it at the neck of the stem underneath that cup portion, and your hand turns upwards towards it, or you grip around the stem and you sip it. The fingerprints are most likely going to be on the stem of the wine glass or on the actual glass portion where the liquid's being held. So once again, you could do what I just demonstrated with putting your hand in the glass and opening it and turning it over or going to somewhere where you're less likely to have those prints at. Forensics lessons with Katie. I'm not getting paid. <laughs> With this letter, the typist was determined to be an experienced individual that made no errors in punctuation or spelling. Double spaces were added after each period, which at this time was taught in typing schools, but the individual did, however, overuse colons and only added like one space after each colon rather than the two, which is the approved method of practicing typing. This allowed individuals to determine that the author was reasonably educated. And with no further evidence being able to be collected from this, Mary received this letter to read to the agents in her home at some point during that day, I presume, in the afternoon, as the time to process prints and do other forensic detailing over it takes time and then you also have to go through the process if you're willing to disrupt the actual evidence piece it could have been a copy that they gave mary to i'm not sure it wasn't really clear on the article okay so the note read as miss coors your husband has been kidnapped his car is by turkey creek call the police or the fbi he dies cooperate he lives ransom is $200,000 in tens and $300,000 in twenties. There will be no negotiation. Bills are to be used non-consecutive, unrecorded, and unmarked. Warning, we will know if you call the police or record the serial numbers. Directions are to place the money and this letter and the envelope in one suitcase or bag. Have two men with a car ready to make the delivery. When all set, advertise a tractor for sale in the Denver Post, Section 69. Sign ad as King Ranch, Fort Lupton. Wait at NA 9-445 for instructions after the ad appears. Deliver immediately after receiving the call. Any delay will be regarded as a stall to set up a stakeout. Understand this, Adolf's life is in your hands. We have no desire to commit murder. All we want is that money. If you follow the instructions, he will be released unharmed within 48 hours after the money is received. Now, Mary understandably did get the money. She bought the ad and two agents recorded the serial numbers because how are you gonna know yeah, yeah especially in that time situation. how are you gonna know exactly and mm. these two agents were prepared to make the delivery undercover for this basic ransom how see that was one thing i thought was interesting was that he's i'm assuming it's he they specifically specified like have two men meet the person with the money i was a little surprised they didn't just say like have her be one of the people because then i feel like that's almost less likely that she would have somebody undercover because then she could potentially be in harm's way but i don't know what how criminals think of that <laughs> but it was just kind of interesting to me absolutely and she was very concerned at this time of like she did not want to risk her husband's life which understandably i wouldn't either oh definitely yeah oh yeah no absolutely not but she was like, are you sure that you guys won't get caught as FBI agents? Like, I can have people from the brewery, our employees go and do this. And like, I just want, I want him back. I want to make sure this is safe. I don't want him getting hurt. Like, that was her ultimate priority to which the FBI was like, honestly, who's going to know? 
he's not going to know that it's us. He, these are strangers delivering this delivery anyway. He has no idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if nowadays, I mean, that would be a major security breach to be able to know the identities of FBI undercover agents. So, but back then, I feel like there's got to be no way he could have known. It would have mm -hmm. just been bluffing and yeah. intimidation. Absolutely. So, with this, though, the delivery was prepared. However, they never heard from the kidnapper. What? <laughs> ah. So, within the following days, the investigation began to focus more on the man who drove the yellow 1951 Mercury scene in the area where Ada disappeared. Eight days after Coors had been kidnapped, the car was found on fire in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Which, wow, hell of a drive. Yeah! This was a gasoline-fueled fire, and it had been deliberately set, but it didn't destroy the serial number imprinted on the engine. This car was traced back to a Joseph Corbett Jr. Now, officials zone in on Corbett, a convicted murderer at the time, who had walked away from a minimum security prison located in California four and a half years prior. He, at the time, had been using the alias Walter Osborne and living around Capitol Hill for four years before the attack on aid. The FBI then proceeded to obtain a fugitive warrant for Cobert Jr. and placed him on the FBI's top 10 most wanted fugitives list. In September of 1960, some hikers in the Rocky Mountains came across a pair of pants and a pocket knife bearing the Coors initial, which prompted investigators to search the area for any other signs of aid. In the days following, a shirt and a skull were found, followed by the remaining skeletal remains of aid Coors. Unfortunately, at the time aid had been discovered and returned to his loved ones, Corbett Jr. had still not been apprehended. The case did remain significant to the public eye and media for this time, and ultimately, magazine readers in Canada were the ones that broke the case wide open when an individual reported a man resembling Colbert Jr. to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the FBI. A man fitting Corbett Jr.'s description had been seen in the Vancouver area driving a fire engine red Pontiac. And on October 29th of 1960, a Vancouver police officer reported a similar vehicle parked outside of a local inn. And with the FBI's help, they approached the door, knocking on it a couple of times to have Cobert Jr. answer it, stating, I give up. I'm the man that you want. Cobert Jr. was arrested and returned to Colorado, where he was tried for the murder of Aid Coors. Now, while he was charged with murder, he was not charged with federal kidnapping, since Coors' remains were still within the state of Colorado. If they had been outside of the state of Colorado, he would have been charged with federal kidnapping as well. Damn. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Ugh. So... Let's rewind real quick and go back to that crisp, windy morning on Tuesday, February 9th of 1960. As Abe drove along that detour road with his travel all rambling through the canyon, reaching the last bend, turning to the Turkey Creek Bridge, Cobert Jr. was waiting on the bridge, who at this point had been stalking aid for months, awaiting a chance to carry out his scheme. Cobert Jr. had backed his canary yellow Mercury sedan onto the one-lane bridge just minutes before aid's arrival. A pair of handcuffs and iron leg clads were obtained prior to this and were sitting in his back seat. A ransom note in an envelope was ready for the mail later that day, possibly stationed within his glove box, and a concealed pistol was in his coat pocket. Ugh. He had exited his four-door car, leaving the driver's door open and opening the rear door before raising the hood to signal for engine trouble. 
Cobert Jr. stood by the car waiting for his victim. All he had to do was lure Aid in, and by the end of the week, he would be a rich man. It was 8 a.m. when, as planned, Aid pulled up and, in his nice and caring nature, rolled down the window and asked if he could help. Cobert shouted back a rehearsed reply, and Aid stepped out of his travel all, shutting the door behind him, but left the engine running as he didn't expect to be long. In fact, he figured he'd help push the car out of the way and give this driver a ride to a nearby station to call for help. So as Aid approached Cobert, he stepped out and drew his pistol, taking Aid by surprise. Aid was an intelligent but stubborn man, and he fought back against his attacker. The two wrestled with Aid slamming Cobert into the crude bridge railing as both Aid's baseball cap and Cobert's fedora flew into the creek. Aid's glasses soon joined the two hats, cracking the left lens upon impact with the rocks below. Giving one last shove, Aid made a break for the travel all as Corbert, seeing his opportunity for ransom money escape, pointed the pistol and fired. On March 19th of 1961, Corbert Jr. was convicted of the murder and sentenced to life in prison. However, was released December 12th of 1980 after serving less than 19 years for AIDS murder. Shit. Yeah, no, that made me very upset. Yeah, that's not okay. Mm-mm. On mm. August 24th of 2009, manager Mark Johnson of the Royal Cachetou Apartments, where Corbett Jr. lived for more than 25 years, turned the knob and pushed open the green trim door on Unit 307 to check on Corbett Jr. In the bedroom, he found a shocking scene of the man laying in his bed, a single gunshot wound to his head. Corbett Jr. did note in the years prior to his suicide that he was haunted by the whispers of people who recognized him for his crime, saying, there goes the man who killed Aid Coors. And that's the story. We're finished. We made it. It's done. It's, it's done. done. It's done. It's not like to be like, oh God, the story was boring. We had so many technical difficulties throughout the story. It wasn't even funny. Like tonight was a cursed episode night. <laughs> Seriously. Oh my God. To which I'll oh. be uploading a photo over on our Instagram of Jack is come calling back. <laughs> Don't waste your minutes talking about her cat. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways re now that we've got through the story <laughs> and i have a nightmare ahead of me when it comes to editing what did you think <laughs> damn yeah i just I'm really shocked he was able to get off the hook of so much prison time for the murder. Oh, that's... That's just not right. But mm -hmm. no, I mean, I'm also really sad for his wife that it worked out that way. Because, I mean, she had the money in hand and was going to pay the ransom and all that. And she still lost her husband in the end. Yeah. I can't imagine how much grief she felt upon the discovery of AIDS remains. Not even just AIDS remains for that point, but when the individual failed to call or show up for the ransom delivery, like, that must have been just this gut-wrenching, heart-stopping moment to start with. And then going months without knowing, because this happened in February and AIDS wasn't discovered until September. Oh, God. I didn't realize that it was that big of a gap. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I figured no matter what, not hearing anything about the... The ransom would definitely be a bad sign, because if 
the criminal really thought that he had been had or been caught by the FBI or whatever, I feel like he would have at least sent something saying, either upping the stakes or saying um, something out of spite or something at all. So to not say anything, I don't think is ever a good sign. And then the fact that the money was offered up and he didn't show up for it, it's just... Ugh. Yeah, Absolutely. and then to wait for months just not knowing what what the hell happened and if he's still out there somewhere with your husband or probably at that point assuming the worst that if you haven't heard anything then what happened. Yeah. And unfortunately like with the article in the long reads which once again will be linked in our reference they go a little bit more into detail regarding what was going on and kind of where Corbett was after killing aid and what he had done afterwards and he had basically still planned to follow through on the ransom from what i read however when the fbi started pulling up i presume he got scared and decided to run instead hmm. i don't know how would he have been able to get away with the ransom if he didn't have the man in, in hand to trade for the ransom? I don't know. He wasn't planning on trading him back right away, though. He was planning on taking the money, oh. and then in a couple of days, he'd return Abe. Uh, Abe. I see. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. No, it's, it's a brutal story, and... It's one that I know even today still has echoes throughout the Colorado community, especially in Golden. Yeah, I bet. Wow. But yeah, that was one that came to mind more recently, and I was like, I wonder if Ree knows that knows that story. No, I didn't. Yeah, it's. It's, I think, another example of what greed can really do to a person. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. Yeah. That and the failure of the justice system on the victim's part, the secondary victims, for that matter, because this man got released after 19 years. He was 31 oh, yeah. at the time. That puts him at being in his 50s, probably directly at 50. So there's a chance that the individual could reoffend, and according to an article listed out by the FBI, they had actually noted that he was released on parole in 1979, and he immediately left the state, which was against the parole board's direction at that point to yeah. go do something uh. in California. However, he returned to Colorado, and upon being found again, he was revoked from his parole rights. Mm. Which, I don't understand the short period of time between 1990, uh, 1979 to 1980 that something drastically changed to reinstate those rights. Yeah, that's odd. Mm-hmm. But... Hmm. Ugh. He is not the only one that has been released after committing violent acts. And within this podcast and future episodes, not necessarily saying next time or whenever, but there are cases that we'll talk about that violent offenders get out on parole and they reoffend. And unfortunately, that theory of escalation proceeds to go upwards as they do. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a controversial issue, but in those situations, I just feel so much for the victims because oh, yeah. this could have been prevented. Absolutely. But anyways, I do hope that you guys enjoyed this case this week. Even if I did sound a little angry at the beginning, this is a very popular case that I watched on forensic files which that episode will be linked in this too i didn't really watch it for this case i went and did my own research no shell shocker um <laughs> <laughs> rather than just watching a documentary and getting it done with but 
it wasn't necessarily a story that I grew up with, but when I did hear about it, it was one of those things that's like, why haven't I heard about this before? And it might have been just because I wasn't in the Golden or Morrison area of Colorado. However, when I had first heard about it, I do recall talking to older people in my family and that I knew, and they remember during that time period how things felt so weird and so off. Yeah, I'll have to ask some of my family members because being from Colorado as well, also not from the Golden area, but yeah, I don't know. I know, I don't know how long my family was there before they had me, so I don't know if they were actually there when that happened or if they were in another state, but that would be interesting to talk to some of my family members to see if they remembered that case. Ugh, yeah, it's definitely one that's going to stick with me. Yep. One of those ones that haunts you. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. <laughs> Not to be punny or anything, or maybe two. Who knows? But anyways, thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next week. Thank you again for listening to Haunting Cases Podcast. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Haunting Cases Podcast and on Twitter at Haunting Cases. If you have a listener tale, story request, or any questions, email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, what do you say, listeners? Are you haunted too?